This is Season 5, Episode 12, Normal Sucks with Jonathan Mooney. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be a part of it. Yeah, I'm excited to see where the conversation goes. And like, I'm not one for small talk, so I thought I'd just dive straight in and ask. Kind <laughs> not, of. Neither, neither am I. <laughs> oh, good. I'm always that person at the party, you know, that just goes really intense really quickly and, and everyone's like, wow. <laughs> um, but I'm curious. Like what's, what's your vision of the world that you're kind of working towards and how are you currently expressing that or exploring that? You know, I'm uh, you know, on a mission like, like, like yourself and, and so many others to, to build a more inclusive, equitable and just world that, that works for not some, but, uh, but all, um, you know, that, that, that work, um, has been my, you know, life's work for, for 21 years plus now. Um, it's taken, you know, many different manifestations from doing around uh, economic justice and economic empowerment for, for folks who have been left behind, um, doing community-based uh, organizing and empowerment work for folks who feel disenfranchised and left out of civic culture and civic life and are often pathologized. And uh, it's taken um, uh, uh, expression as uh, fighting for inclusion for folks with atypical brains and bodies. Um, that's really been my focus uh, for the past uh, decade uh, or more uh, about reimagining and evolving learning to include people who have been told that they can't learn and to be challenging the whole idea of a, of a normal human, which has been used to really uh, dehumanize people who fall outside of that uh, tyrannical and, and uh, mythical uh, view of what it means to live. So that's, that's, that's my jam. Just, just a few, just a few things. <laughs> I love it because there's, but there's like a through line and a thread in it, you know, and I think that anyone that can summarize their passion and their vision and their work in the world or just their, who they strive to be in one sentence, I'm always a little wary of, you know, so I like, I like it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm I, like I want to start with this concept of normal because you know it has been weaponized. It has been something that um, we all subconsciously, I guess, aspire to be, even though it's kind of intangible and elusive to to actually dictate what that is. But can we can we start there? And can you explain a little bit about the genesis of this idea of normal in within the systems that we've built and and how? how that affects us in a negative way. You know, the, 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 the deep contradictions um, within the, the notion of normal that you beautifully articulated, you know, a philosopher of, of science named Ian Hacking once said that the word normal uh, simultaneously names what is, like it's a fact in the world, but also what should be. Uh, as an ideal in the world. So that's the deep contradiction. You know, we use it as a word to sort of describe the facts of the world, 
Um, we use it in ways that seem like they're objective, you know, oh, that's just the way it is, you know, that's normal. But at the same time, we're consciously uh, and often unconsciously perpetuating that sort of imposition of an impossible ideal onto a human being. And that's not a, a flaw in, in the system, meaning it's not a sort of linguistic um, uh, flaw, uh, people using words casually. It, it's actually by design. Mm. So when you look at the sort of history of, of, of normal, you know, as a word, uh, it did not enter the English language officially until the 1860s. Uh, and then subsequently as a concept that's used to sort of organize uh, the world, uh, both conceptually, but then also systemically, um, that that cultural context of its immersion tells you a lot, right? 1860s um, was the sort of rise of mathematical thinking as a way to kind of make sense of the world, control the world. Um, it was the rise of industrial capitalism, um, which uh, by definition was uh, embedding sort of norms of industrial production to, to, um, to, to maximize growth. Um, and it was the um, highest articulation of, of colonialism and imperialism and, and institutionalized racism, um, meaning codified within textbooks and whole scientific discourse around, you know, inherently defected human beings. Well, that's lived in our consciousness for a long time. The sort of 1860s was, um, and the late 1800s was, was really an apex of that um, kind of formal articulation. And surprise, surprise, the word normal <laughs> becomes uh, sort of used in, 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 in a broader set of cultural discourses um, to discredit folks that don't fit and to sort of impose a notion of what should be on all. Um, and it got embedded as a result into the sort of large scale systems that we come to think of um, as, as emerging within the, the, the late 1800s, you know, uh, standardized approaches to education, consumer marketing, which really exploded during that time. And, and then the, uh, the, the increasing medicalization of society all sort of took off there and they took norm or normal as a design feature. Um, uh, design feature sometimes unconsciously, but sometimes intentionally as a way to, to norm the population, as a way to discredit and marginalize um, whole swaths of human beings that don't fit the middle of the bell curve. And I guess prescribe rights accordingly, right? Like, so the further away from that middle of the bell curve you are, the less rights you have, uh, the less, um, yeah, the less access to resources and power and privilege you're going to have access to. And so it's, yeah, when you, t when you talk about that, um, there's something happening in my body, right? Like I always move and think and feel these concepts through my body and there's something happening that's like a uh, the real acknowledgement of the truth and also the like how stifling it is to exist within that and how I think inherent within all of us there's this part that wants to break free of that and also paradoxically fit into it at the same time yeah and and you know um the further you are from the middle of the bell curve, the less rights you have in a formal sense of uh, 
being granted full citizenship and participation in civic life. Um, but also the less valuable you are as a human being Mm. and the, 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 the discourse around normality uh, broadly as it pertained to black and brown folks, LGBTQ plus folks, economically marginalized folks was always employed or deployed as a way to dehumanize and devalue those folks. Mm. Uh, Because to go back to that, um, Ian Hacking quote, normal isn't just what is, but what should be. And so if you are outside of what should be, well, then something's wrong with you. And not only is that that notion of, of normal stifling, because it, it imposes sort of this impossible ideal on, on humans who then um, are told to chase it. You know, we're told, we're told to chase it uh, in so many ways consumer marketing and and we've seen at least in the united states recently where where i'm speaking to y'all from we've seen how instagram is just a continued perpetuation of the impossible ideal and and the damage that does to teenage girls uh in particular teenage women uh because of this beaming into their heads this this notion of who they should be opposed to celebrating who they are um, and, and that's not my words. That's, that's, that's Facebook's words, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like the, the correlation between uh, high Instagram use, um, uh, young women and suicide ideation and suicide attempts was in their own documentation. They had identified that in their own internal documents. So not only is, is normality stifling in the full expression and full range of, of human flourishing, it's also wounding it wounds human beings deeply to be called not normal. Mm. I'm curious because I'm on this kind of long and winding journey of starting to, well, continuing to disentangle the tendrils of capitalism from around my throat. And, um, and as you're talking, you know, about value and value being prescribed externally, how, linked is this concept of normal with productivity and uh, our value being centered as economic beings as opposed to individual beings with many expressions of uh, of life moving through us do you think it's it's uh, symbiotic i mean to go back to the cultural origin of the concept um it was operationalized in factories in, in which it was about um standardizing production standardizing humans to extract as much value from their labor and then subsequently the consumer's dollar um, around a set of 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 uh, productivity uh, enhancing norms and systems um, now go to the other side of the coin um, the devaluing of, of folks who are outside the bell curve and a lot of my work is within the disability rights uh, community and, and, and construct. The devaluing of folks with atypical brains and bodies by pathologizing them as not normal was a key uh, cultural signal that if you aren't productive as a human being, because folks with, with atypical bodies are consistently sort of uh, seen as unproductive you know they're the sort of uh exemplar that 
um, uh, challenges the myth of the sort of independent consuming human opposed to the interdependent human mm. uh, where we all relate together and need help and support and mutual care and the sort of deep pathologizing and, 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 and frankly, the, the systemic attempts at eradicating um, atypical bodies is, is a cultural signal um, obviously to those folks, but also to everybody that if you deviate from the norms, you're not valuable as a human being uh, and you're not valuable because you can't contribute economically into this consumer uh, rapacious capitalist machine. Mm. It's um, I love when, I love when we can start to bring awareness to this interplay between, I guess, the self and our own personal experience that we all have, regardless of where we sit, um, of being othered and, and experiencing um, what it feels like, that deep fear and terror of rejection and abandonment of when we do deviate, you know, from the norm within our family systems. Um, and then acknowledging the system, right? Like, so this interplay between the system and the self, I think is so important that we are able to hold both those lenses and be able to, as, as you do so well, um, not, not ever put ourselves in the shoes of those folks who exist at the margins or whose identities make them um, disadvantaged in some way or othered in some way, but that we're able to hold both. We're able to hold both our own terror and experience as well as um, be open to really receptively listening to the experience of others. So I'm really grateful. Um, as I'm, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about my own daughter who, whose brain is atypical of whatever language feels comfortable to use in this setting. Um, you know, diverse, whatever we want to say, but you know what I mean? To me, she's my daughter and, and my journey into this space um, has been such a reparative one, acknowledging the way that my own brain works and the way that I move in the world, which has always felt really different. And she's this kid that you put her in a system and she shrivels and then you take her out of it and she thrives. And it's like this incredible, incredible expression of life, right, that you try and put her in any of the systems that we've constructed around this economic productivity idea um, that puts that places people in hierarchies and rewards them and punishes them accordingly. And then you take her out and put her in the forest and she's like completely whole human as she always has been. And, um, and I'm thinking about your own journey and I wonder whether you, f- you feel called to share your own journey into this work and um, how you began to decolonize this idea of normal from, from the body and the mind and also I guess how that's allowed you to find some thriving and flourishing. Yeah, well, the, the political is personal. Uh, you can't, you can't, you can't divorce that both in one's own um, journey of, of, of advocacy, engagement, thriving and healing, but then to, to your astute point um, to the larger uh, construction of a self, which always occurs within um systems and structures you, you, you know we're we're not this sort of independent entity uh, we're an interdependent beings and so the family system messages the school system messages the the media ecosystem the economic system 
um, we are, we are all deeply impacted by that. And so my work is deeply informed, perhaps first and foremost informed by, you know, being told that, that I wasn't normal, um, because of the socioeconomic background I came from, um, here in, in these States with my, with my, my blended family and my mom and my dad. Um, and also because of my atypical brain, you know, I was the kid that, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't fit the, 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 the round hole of American education. You know, I, I spent a lot of the day chilling out with the custodian in the hallway. You know, I was on a first name basis with Shirley, the receptionist in the principal's office. And, um, I was the kid who, you know, hid in the bathroom to uh, escape reading out loud. And, uh, I generally, uh, got the message that, that, my differences were deficiencies and uh, extricating myself from that message, uh, which was deeply uh, wounding. I mean, I had a plan for suicide when I was 12. Um, I struggled um, throughout my adolescence and early adulthood with substance abuse and uh, extricating myself from that, that feeling, um, that message, that sense of self, that self-construct was was um was a journey and it, it was the journey um meaning often when young folks or adults or anybody kind of uh, deviates from the norm around an atypical brain or body people think the journey is about overcoming the limitation inside of yourself you know when the reality is that the journey is about overcoming the limitations that had been put on you mm. by cultural constructs um, to say it in a flippant way, you know, people come to my story and they say, you know, you overcame your dyslexia. Mm-hmm. I'm dyslexic. I, I can't spell. I, spelling sucks. My handwriting sucks. That's all true. But I didn't overcome dyslexia. If I overcame anything, it was dystichia. You know, <laughs> I, I overcame <laughs> a, a narrow definition of what learning meant. And so, you know, that's everything. That is the journey. You know, that is the work. And and why I situate my, 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 my work in that I voice of, of my experience and acknowledging all the places in which, you know, privilege played a huge role in my journey, male privilege, uh, white privilege, um, uh, down the road, because I learned how to play the school game, academic privilege, et cetera. Um, at the same time, it's, it, 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 it's, um, a, a broad experience that connects a whole group of folks with different individual or, or cultural experiences, it's a broad experience that's connected around being called not normal, you know, because it's, it's been used in such a way to, 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 to push a whole swaths of human beings to the margin and, and, and devalue them. And, and a big part of the journey of thriving is about challenging that, you know, challenging that, that's, that, that construct of different is deficient, which is so ingrained in the medical uh, model, medical community. It's so ingrained in our language. and It's so ingrained in our systems. That's, that's the work is to challenge that the sense of self. Mm. Which is so big, right? Like I think it's really at the heart of the work. When I talk about regeneration, I talk about cultural regeneration, inner regeneration. It's the same thing. It's, it's coming back to life and to come back to life. We need to, have tools and perspectives and and folks and mentors that can sit alongside us as we kind of wade through the deep 
shame that sits on top of our gifts, you know, and I think that the thing that, the thing about all of this that I keep thinking about is this construct of normal, these constructs of success to which we're all prescribing and to which I think no one is really thriving within, but some people are better at pretending than others, <laughs> can, can last longer <laughs> than others. Um, I think that what it ultimately does is it dulls the life that moving through us. It dulls our connection to life. It dulls our connection to ourselves, to each other. And that shame that sits above it all is, is hiding, I think, to me, this enormous creative force and potential to find solutions to these big social and economic and um, climate problems in new and interesting ways. And yet, you know, we're all so busy trying to be normal that these unique individual gifts that each of us have come here with, whether that's um, and that's not a job or a vocation. That's who we are in our beingness and the way that we show up in that interdependent web. Like I think that that's that's where this work can take us, you know, back into where those gifts are shining, back into a place of wholeness, back into a place of interconnection. And to me that's enormously exciting and the reason I do this work is that I have, I think, I'm an, I'm can be an, an insane skeptic, but I'm also an eternal optimist. I think in in thinking about that, that the more we have spaces where we can critically analyze the systems and the harms that they've done, um, we also, on the flip side of that, have an enormous um, potential that we can harness. Do you agree with that? Has that been your experience as you kind of came back to life? Yeah, it's our it's our only hope. You know. Um, you know, we are on the on the pointy end of a climate crisis that has been driven by by the system that gave us normal, and subsequently has been um, driven by normal. Um, when we look at you know biodiversity, um, we look at, at factory farming in which sort of a monoculture. Uh, uh, a norming of the of the agricultural landscape broken up into little plots that that um, that are maximized for production and, and we see you know Iowa um, uh, the, the the farm belt of the United States no longer have productive agriculture land that just is one of many examples of where this notion of of what the good life is what the good person is uh, around this, consuming um uh, normality is 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 a wake-up call for us and the flip side of that coin is the regenerative power of 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 biodiversity the regenerative power of neurodiversity um you're right to say uh, and i think this is broadly true around the unique gifts that every human brings to the table and specifically folks who have been historically seen as, mm. as, as uh, diagnosable, their gifts are profound and profoundly needed in this moment. Mm. We know that creativity, you know, goes hand in hand with reading and, and writing challenges. We know that, that um, problem solving skills go hand in hand with folks who um, have quote unquote executive functioning problems. And, and that this neurodiversity is just as valuable to our health and well-being uh, as 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 biodiversity. And we know cultural diversity with a series of, of different practices and different values 
is another part of that challenge to monoculture that what it means to regenerate is to nurture um, uh, all of those forms of diversity. And I think there is a, uh, an ethical um, and, and, and frankly, uh, a moral framework that runs counter to normalism as a, as a way to live um, that's embodied in uh, those diversity movements, ecological, cultural, and, and, and neurobiological that, that stands in indirect affront to the uh, set of values that have gotten us where we are now. You know, I take great um, inspiration from, from the disability rights movement. Um, obviously, the ethical demand that, that uh, we build uh, environments that are um, designed around the, the diversity of bo- brains and bodies that we know exist in the world um, are a fact in the world. Uh, but I also take deep inspiration in, in a set of ethical demands that the disability rights movement is positing that challenges the, um, uh, the normalism um, that has led us to where we are now. You know, this notion of interdependence opposed to in- independence as an ethical proposition, you know, that's a profound rebuke to the consuming individual that competes against all the other individuals. And that's a core demand of many diversity movements, disability rights movement included. You know, this notion, there's a great saying in the disability rights movement that we're all temporarily abled bodies. I would add temporarily abled bodies and minds and that we're all valuable as beings and therefore need mutual care and mutual support and that we should design social systems, not around the myth of the able-bodied person, but the reality of the valuable human being. And imagine the, 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 the world and how different it would be if those sort of ethical and moral principles were centered opposed to marginalized. And those became the design principles of our places of, of commerce, of work, our, our places of, of learning, and ultimately our communities. That is a hopeful um, world. I take hope in that. And, and that's the world that I'm trying to work towards. Mm, me too. And as you're speaking, it just reminds me of like all of that biomimicry design and you know, inherently nature is not, you, you see You see competition at certain times, you know, in mating season, so, so on and so forth, over food occasionally. But in, within ecosystems, it's inherently a collaborative, you know, a collaborative experience that the pattern of life is a network. And I think that that, what I've seen time and time again is that when folks are offered a reparative space, which is, inherently relational to me like I think so much of this repair has to be done relationally yes like on our own in therapy of course but then there's this whole piece around when you step out into the world and you express who you really are and it doesn't fit within that tiny narrow window that we've been given and someone loves you there and someone moves towards you there like that's everything right like that's been my experience that's been the spaces that I try and design it's it's a relational repair and regeneration as much as it is an individual one and within that I think it opens up this space for resources to be moved through networks reciprocally for folks to um ask for help, to give help, to uh, find, you know, I think the local futures movement is massive and, and so, so important in all of this. I don't think we're going to build a new economic reality without local futures and local economies. 
And I think when you think about the ripples outwards of challenging the idea of normal, which is stifling, it's so exciting to me um, what might be possible. Me too. Me too. And, 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 and it's in relation to people like yourself and um, it's in relation to, you know, like people who see you not for who you should be based on the lens of normality, but for who you are, you know, that's, that's transformation and that's healing, not being diagnosed, being seen as deficient, not being treated, you know, uh, as some, as an intervention to fix your problem, but being seen for who you are and then being welcomed into a space that could be an economic space. That could be a community space. That could be a, a learning space um, in which who you are is, is, is seen and valued as you are. Mm. Um, that's, that's, that's the work, you know? And I think that work uh, applies you know, around human thriving and human flourishing in, in a flawed system and a, and a, and a uh, suffering world. It applies to reimagining uh, our economic reality because as you rightfully noted, the local futures movement I think is profound. And, and what it's challenging is that notion of what is a, a normal economy because that's been off limits to critique. You know, that's just the way it is, the way it has to be, right? Again, normal masquerading as a fact in the world and an impossible ideal at the same time. And, and, and we should challenge those ideas and, and, and look to those practices uh, of localized food systems, of community-based education, of learning networks mm-hmm. opposed to school systems. You know, how do we build a learning network that uh, isn't top-down, um, that's grounded in, in multiple nodes of learning that are relational, that are interconnected, that aren't about a particular professional vocational end or some prestige. Th- those, those are the, the, the opportunities that arise when we can stop thinking about who is, who is not normal, what is, what is not normal, and, and really see what is and, and build on that reality. Mm. Sorry, I could just keep having this conversation all day, but I know we both have to go and pick up kids and do things. Um, so I'm curious, just on that note, with the relational piece, are there stories or certain folks in your life that came along at integral moments that were able to see you for who you were? Um, and how, and how was, was that? I mean, being in relationship with those individuals. And, and I guess, is that something that now you endeavour to do in your relationships as well? Yeah, look, you know, I, I, I told y'all that, that uh, I had a plan for suicide when I was like 12, um, which is in the United States. That's like sixth grade. So the end of elementary education right before middle school. And I had actually left school uh, during that period for a good chunk of time. And, uh, uh, you know, I had my mom in my corner for, for my whole education, you know, as an advocate for me, as somebody who saw me and, and somebody who also really advocated for the system to change. But then on the other side of the, 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 the continuum, I had my father who, you know, very much was, um, you got to be normal. Uh, you know, what's wrong with you, you know, buck up, work harder, you know, make the square peg fit the round hole. And so, you know, there was a moment in, in my relationship with him where, you know, towards the, to, to the middle of, of sixth grade, 
me and my dad went to this very famous baseball game. I won't bore y'all with it because I know you're in Australia. So <laughs> baseball is not that big of a deal, but it's a very famous baseball game, 1988 world series. And, um, I don't even remember the game. What I remember is after the game, me and my dad were sitting in the car waiting to, to, to leave the parking lot. And, you know, my dad turned to me and I was just expecting the full lecture. You know, you got to go back to school. What's wrong with you? You know, fix your dyslexia, work harder. And my dad turned to me and he goes, I love you regardless of how you do in school. And, you know, that was it. Uh, being seen for who I was in his own words, you know, um, uh, imperfect as they may have been. What I took from that was, you know, you're okay as you are. And um, I mean, that literally kind of saved my life. You know, I went home and kind of scrapped that, that, that plan for self-harm and, um, you know, was, was, uh, was rescued in that moment from a, from a deep place of despair. And so I try to live by that. You know, I try to try to not see people for who they should be, but for who they are. I try to um, build relationships, not um, based on what they can do for me or do for the, 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 the world in a, in a sort of um, economic sense, but, but relationships with other humans. And, and the good news about this is, you know, we talked a lot today about, you know, some big stuff, you know, like uh, reimagining. And evolving our our economic systems, our community systems, our school systems, you know, and, and and that could feel not doable, right? And I know sometimes it certainly feels uh, like an impossible task for me. But what we can do is see people for who they are, and we can celebrate that with them. You know, our words matter, our expectations matter, and ultimately how we treat other human beings. You know, it, it matters. It's everything. And, and, and that's what I try to hold myself accountable to. Mm. And, and as you're talking, it's just thank you for sharing that story. It's so, it so um, beautifully summarizes, I think, our conversation. Um, as you're talking, it's reminding me how vital it is that we reframe first and foremost those expectations and ways of relating to ourselves, right? Like I think that the natural byproduct of me being in integrity and right relationship with myself and not holding expectations or not allowing my humanity to pour through me um, always results in, in judgment and harsh expectations of others. Right? But when I'm in that place of, of humanness, in all of that fallibility and vulnerability and messiness and chaos, which cannot be controlled. Like that's when I'm most connective. That's when I can see someone for who they really are because I'm seeing myself. And so I think to bring it right back from the systems down to the micro back to the self, um, is it, is it really that simple as just being a little kinder to ourselves and, and allowing ourselves to exist outside this, this narrow definition of normal is that kind yes, of the starting point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. That 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 that's I mean, you know, the irony is well not irony, the deep truth is, you know, my father was given the same messages that he gave to me. Um, my father, you know, went to a Catholic school where he had a nun, no joke, named Sister Payne. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, my father was was shamed for not being normal my father was ashamed of not being normal and he perpetuated that cycle but not that day that day he broke it and he was 
um, kind, generous, and inclusive of me and my differences on that night in the baseball parking lot. But more importantly, he was accepting and loving of himself in that moment. And that's what facilitated change for me and ultimately change for him. Mm. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I've so enjoyed connecting in, in this conversation. I know other folks are going to as well. One of, one of the highlights of, of, uh, of, my, of my week, my month, my year to talk with you um, and to be a, a small part of the mission you and your community are on to, to heal, regenerate, and, and imagine a different future for all of us. Mm-hmm.